Hey listeners, welcome to another episode of The Background Scoop. I'm your host, DJ Stavropoulos, part-time background actor here in Atlanta, Georgia. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm sure you're tired of hearing this, but I'll tell you again. I stumbled into Yollywood in October 2019 and did just over 30 projects in my first year, including nine weeks in a bubble on a Netflix movie that won't be out until probably December 2021. I'm up to over 40 projects now, so without sounding pretentious, I think I have something valuable to share with anyone who wants to listen, and that's you. Are you an up-and-coming background actor who wants to learn more? Listen in. Do not press stop at this point in time. Okay, that was my fake accent. Were you fooled? That's the point. If you'd never heard me speak before, you wouldn't really know if that is what I sound like. It was fake and not real. This episode is all about what's real and what's not when you're filming in this industry. I'll keep this short and sweet. In order to make what looks like reality in shows and movies, there's a lot of fake stuff produced, and sometimes it's hard to tell what's real and what's not. Like Suds versus Snow. Is that a hot dog you can eat or a plastic one? Are those real menus or just menu covers with nothing inside? Will that glass of wine get you drunk or is it apple juice for babies? Are those naked people acting having sex or are they in flesh tone bodysuits just simulating the act? Okay, you get my drift? Are you picking up on what I'm laying down? I think you've got it. I think you've got my point. I'll get started after the break. It's Thursday, February 18th, 2021. I'm back on First Wives Club for the fourth time, and I'm doing a fifth episode next Wednesday. This is the ultimate easy background job, and here's why. They keep sending me work. I apply and get a response within an hour. There's only one COVID test, and it's the day before, always between 9 and 11 a.m. As a result, I know that I don't have to block off my entire day and worry about them giving me a specific time at the last minute and having it totally conflict with something. Most companies do not tell you your testing time or time window until the day before testing. The days are always short and they start at the Georgia World Congress Center. And if we film elsewhere, it's always in downtown Atlanta, very close by. The first time I worked this show, it was nine hours, but every other time, it's been three to four or less. The vouchers are electronic. They pay quickly, and that's about it. The day started out fine. I brought my dog to a friend's yesterday because when I have no idea whether I'll have a 6 a.m. call time, I can't factor in driving my dog somewhere the morning of. So Sugar has a sleepover with her brother, Diesel. Of course, the call time came in at 10.30 last night, and it was 11.45 today, very late, as First Wives Club usually is. I was cast as a cabana person in a pool scene, so all I had to bring was four swimsuits and some matching shirts and beach sandals. Although they had cast for five, quote, handsome men, unquote, apparently I wasn't handsome enough. Ryan, the PA, recognized me, and because I had my red notice hoodie on, he asked me if I knew Mike, who was our PA on that film, and we chatted a bit about that. Mike has since left First Wives Club to do a movie in North Carolina. Anyway, Meredith was right. The hoodie opens up conversations with people who know what it is and are either curious or know people who worked on it with me. 
Anyway, after we dressed and went through hair and makeup, it was time for a short drive to the Sheraton Hotel on Cortland Street in the heart of downtown Atlanta. I've never been inside, so I was definitely curious. It looks renovated from the outside, but the pool area was definitely very 1970s. It had lots of wrought iron decorative stuff, kind of like you see on balconies in New Orleans. I walked right in and took over the place as if I were in charge. Of course, Lisa, the health and safety woman, was there. Remember that she promised to get me coffee on my first First Wives Club day and then never delivered? Lisa, if you're listening, I'm still waiting for you to take my order. Someday I'm going to confront you about this, although I won't hold a grudge. When I arrived at the hotel, a PA immediately said to me, do you want to do stand-in? So I said yes. Me and another guy were told to go up to the pool and find Matt. We did, but he had no idea who we would be standing in for. After 10 minutes, he sat me back down. On our way up, we had an interesting experience. At the top of the stairs across the lobby was a woman behind a check-in desk. She She saw that I was lost and said loudly, who are you looking for? I said Mike Levin and then immediately realized by the look on her face that she was a real hotel employee and had nothing to do with filming. I had mistaken a real person for an imaginary person in this episode of First Wives Club. I joked with the guy next to me how odd this was for us and said, she's a real person. She has no idea what I'm talking about. This happens all the time. The sets and people look so real that you don't know what's part of the set and what's not. On Jersey back in December, there was a bike shop overrun with film people across from the house we were filming at. I spent hours looking for evidence to either prove or disprove it as a real business. It's because I've driven down that street a million times and never noticed that there was a bike shop there. But that didn't mean it was real. Maybe I just hadn't noticed it. There were bikes all over the place in the parking lot and people going in and out for hours, but they all looked like film people. So I assumed it was real, but just shut down for the day for filming. I never did figure this out. I'll have to check it out the next time I'm in Edgewood. I've got more to say after the break. Okay, here's another story where I was duped into believing something was real. Last week I filmed out in Covington on Doom Patrol. When I drove down the gravel road, there was a huge sign for the Codsville Mountain Resort. Wow, I thought, this is really cool and I had no idea it was here. I tried to check in on Facebook without actually checking in because that would be a no-no, but it wasn't coming up. I opened the Maps app on my iPhone and had no luck there either. It wasn't until hours later that someone told me the signage was fake. We were actually at the Burt Adams Scout Camp. What? So the next day I looked it up. It's a place where Boy Scouts go to learn how to be Boy Scouts. Like most real world sets, you're in a false reality. Wherever you are is really something else, but you have no idea what it really is. All you know is what it's supposed to be for filming. When you see what it really is after the fact, it's very strange. Your brain cements in your mind memories of the alternate personality it had for you just for the day of filming. It's like the Crown Plaza down in Peachtree City where I lived for nine weeks. Once I left, a ballet company was performing The Nutcracker there. I thought about going but then realized how strange it would be to return to a place that was one thing to me for two months only to find it transformed into something completely different. I didn't want that new reality to tarnish my memories of the experience. Where was I? Back to FWC. I was one of the first people pulled onto the set by Matt. He placed me on a chaise lounge at the far right of the set under a cabana and told me to sit with my legs off to the right end but twist my body around facing the left and when the waiter came by, flag him down and order a margarita. 
Ten minutes later, he pulled me out and replaced me with a sexy little woman wearing a butt floss bikini. It seemed like a very sexist set. We were constantly being told that, quote, they want more women, unquote. So Kimmy the customer had me put on boring blue trunks with a blue two-tone tank top I bought at the Gap in South Beach in 2004. It's still in style. I was supposed to be part of a couple, but I never did meet my date. At some point, someone decided they wanted brighter colors, so I ran downstairs to holding and put on my brighter white, red, and blue checked Mr. Swim trunks that I had bought in Provincetown. Later on, I volunteered to get in the pool. Me and four other men were pulled onto the set. We took our shirts off and stood there, but within five minutes, we were scuttled off the set again. At this point, there were people playing with crystal clear beach balls in the pool and some sitting on the edge making conversation with fake drinks. I finally gave up and just went downstairs to eat my lunch and drink my coffee. The food was a fiasco as usual. As soon as I arrived, I noticed that people were coming into the room with food from the buffet right outside. I asked the PA what was going on and she told me they were not supposed to be getting food, but of course, no one was stopping them. Given my experience not getting food, I got online 20 minutes later and got two burgers, a beef one and a turkey one with cheese but no buns. I ate them and drank a bottle of water. What were they going to do, take my food away? 30 minutes later, Anderson, our PA, announced that it was time to eat. I was first in line. This time, I got a beef and vegetarian burger, but guess what? Just as it had happened before, it was time to go upstairs, and Anderson didn't know what to do since most people were still in line. She tried to rush them through, although there was no time to eat the food. Once again, take it upon yourself to eat when you can and always be the first one in line. We were done at 4 p.m., but we were held hostage as usual. We couldn't leave until they finished practicing the next scene upstairs in the lobby because that's how we got out of the building. But it turns out I had parked on the lower level and just walked in, so my car was right outside and I didn't need to get through that lobby. But I did need someone to validate my parking and that's what kept me there. Or so I thought it did. I got the sticker and was shuttled upstairs with everyone else. I asked the PA where she was taking us and explained that I had not entered on that level. The last thing I wanted was to end up lost in some crazy parking garage not knowing how to get back to my car. She understood and told me to go back downstairs, where Anderson pointed to the door that I should exit. I found my car and pulled out of my spot into a line of 10 cars ahead of me, but I also noticed a giant open gate behind me on the far side of the lot and watched in the rearview mirror as someone drove out. Stupid people, sitting in this line thinking this was the only exit. I turned my car around and drove right out the other side. No parking validation needed. Here's the best part of the story. When I got home, there was a text from Castify saying I had to electronically sign my voucher. I did. And then I noticed it said 16.7 hours. Someone had entered the start time as 11 p.m. instead of a.m. So 11 p.m. yesterday to 4.30 p.m. today amounted to 16.7 hours. My rate was $104 for eight hours. I did the math. Unless someone corrects this error, I'm getting paid almost $274 for about four hours of sitting around. That's almost $70 an hour. There is no way in hell I'm contacting anyone about this error. It all evens out. This is God's way of rewarding me for the torture I'm experiencing trying to get my $44 COVID test pay for January 8th. This from a production company that doesn't use vouchers and whose payroll company asks you to send a copy of your voucher so they can research the issue. Really? Pursuing this is no longer worth my time, and today's error in my favor more than compensates me for my trouble.
Picky, picky. The more you do background work, the more selective you may become about what types of jobs you'll do. I think I've decided over these first two months of 2021 to narrow down what I will and will not do just to make my life easier and not negatively impact my real estate business. When you're brand new to background acting, you'll probably submit for everything you can get your hands on just to get work and try things out and see what you like and don't like. But after 40 plus jobs, you learn what makes sense for you. For me, I'm no longer interested in the following. Number one, overnight jobs. No way. I've never signed up for one of these, but did end up doing overnights twice on Doom Patrol last year. Not for me. It wreaks havoc on your internal clock. Two, jobs that are more than 30 miles away. They're just not worth the drive. Three, multiple day jobs. It's too much to take entire sets of days or weeks out of my schedule. And since new clients can pop up at any time, I can't make them less important than the background work. Four, extremely low pay. I get paid 3% of the sales price when a property closes. That's a lot more than $80 an hour. Five, too many COVID tests. This just isn't worth my time. Six, fittings and COVID tests on the same day. Some companies won't pay you for both and don't tell you this up front. I learned the hard way last week. That's like me having two closings on the same day and getting paid only the higher of the two. And seven, multiple things to do before I actually film. I mean, I loved Doom Patrol filming last week, but I had to drive 30 plus miles twice for two COVID tests on the Friday and Monday before filming and deal with their messed up registration process and then get no compensation for fitting because it happened on the same day. I'm not doing that again. I guess when I started, beggars couldn't be choosers, but now I'm choosing to not immediately jump at every opportunity that comes along. Oh, by the way, a few weeks ago, although I thought it was, and almost didn't apply for it, Cobra Kai turned out to not be a cattle call after all. I'm calling this segment Dancing Your Ass Off. Today is Friday, February 26, 2021. Another First Wives Club show two days ago. Here's the moral of the story I'm about to tell. If you're picked to play a role, you should try to do the job to the best of your ability. They are paying you after all, and the background can make or break the scene. This guy Dave couldn't dance at all, and it showed. I was watching early on from the balcony of the music venue when only 15 background were on the floor, and he was barely moving to the music. He looked like he was at a funeral. There's nothing quite like dancing your ass off to a favorite childhood song. I'm guessing the NDA prohibits me from stating the title, but I do know a few words, and they go like this. Hey, sister, go, sister, soul, sister, go, sister. And it's something you spread on toast. I was excited to dance up a storm because I love the song and love to dance, but here's the rub. Don't use up all your energy on the first take because you may run out. You have no idea how many takes it will take to get it right. At the same time, don't go crazy with your dancing because you're not supposed to draw attention to yourself. Your background, not foreground. And if people get distracted because you dance like Elaine on Seinfeld, you've ruined the show. If Cameron had his way, he'd insist that my hips make the best figure eight. Fast forward a few hours, I was getting bored sitting upstairs while just about all the other background was filming the final scene downstairs. We finally got called down at 10 p.m. Yes, this was going to be a long day since I had arrived 12 hours earlier.
There was a chanteuse in a dark nightclub getting ready to sing. Everyone was being placed, but not me. I was dressed in all black since I was supposed to be a waiter, but apparently they had enough waiters. Finally, Ryan came by and placed me on the side in a strange position by a high top, but not with anyone specifically. So I was basically that person that goes to concerts alone and stands close enough to people to feel like they're with them and make others wonder if they are or not. Within minutes, I noticed the director, Daniela Eisman, and another woman looking at me and pointing. I looked behind me because it was one of those situations where you're wondering, are they looking at me or someone behind me? They were looking at me. She parted the crowd like the Red Sea and asked me to follow her right up to the stage, to a seat in the front row, directly in the middle, with a real actor who was already sitting there. She asked me to remove my mask so she could see my full face and commented to the other woman about my scruff. I was golden. Thank the Lord that two weeks ago had elapsed since Doom Patrol had forced me to shave and I now had bona fide stubble. We filmed from behind us a few times and then the cameras moved to the back of the stage to point directly at us. And then Daniela instructed the cameraman to start on the gentleman with the white mask, referring to me, before moving on. So I can't imagine I won't be clearly visible in this scene. Remember that it's episode 10 with a woman in a green dress singing. It was beautiful to listen to her and I was convinced she had actually recorded it and was lip syncing to herself. We obviously made eye contact several times given how close I was. I was happy and smiling and moving my head to show how much I was enjoying it. I'm booked on three things next week, two of them new to me. One, Hawkeye, a Marvel project. Two, season two of Games People Play. And three, my sixth time on First Wives Club. Oh, and Central Casting just asked me to do stand-in on Doom Patrol, but I had to decline. I hate when that happens. I think I'm just going to stop applying to anything so that I'm available for whatever Central sends my way, because their stuff is the cream of the crop. Oh, and I got to hang out with Red Notice friends for dinner at Scout in Oakhurst last night. Brianne, Roella, and Anis. What fun. I have this whole new set of friends that I interact with online and occasionally get to see in the real world. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Welcome back. I've titled this segment, Faking the Big Apple, Part 1. Yesterday was a very long day as we worked in South Downtown Atlanta as a proxy for Manhattan, 1.30 p.m. until 1 o'clock a.m. and another hour to check out. I didn't get to bed until 2.30 a.m., and I don't like being tired. They tell you to expect a 12-hour day, and sometimes this comes true. If you haven't explored it, travel to downtown Atlanta sometime and find Martin Luther King Drive, and then head south down Broad Street. It's an area lost in time, very 1970s, and very much decrepit, but at the same time, the perfect backdrop for scenes that require a gritty Manhattan Lower East Side. Here's the story of another fake 
reality full of lies and other things that weren't exactly real, but instead concocted to make people believe they are. After all, movies, TV, and acting are inherently about getting people to believe something is true. There's a fantastic old vibe and dime on the northeast corner of this block called H.L. Green Company. There were large letters over the corner entrance. I couldn't tell if the signage was fake, but the inside of this hollowed out storefront was our holding pen. And there was evidence of the company name inside, which made it seem like it had been a real company and storefront at some point. I did some research on Google today. It was a variety founded in 1932 by Harold L. Green, became defunct in the 1990s and closed as part of its parent company bankruptcy in 2001. However, the pizza shop across the street was totally fake, I believe. Its neon sign and storefront and painted letters in the window all looked real, but it doesn't come up on my iPhone maps. Neither does the rundown real estate company next door. It had a phone number blasted all over it, but no area code, as if this word suggests it was erected before these existed. I got close enough at one point to read the listings posted on its facade, about 20 real homes all in upstate New York, including Binghamton, where I lived one summer while interning at IBM in Endicott. Or maybe these were fake. The prices looked real. I have never worked in snow before, so this was a real treat. Real man-made snow. I guess that's only partially real. It was snow, but it didn't fall from the sky. All over this block of broad, and they kept having to move it. At one point in the scene where I walked towards the two main characters, the path was treacherous. So six guys jumped into action and very quickly cleared a path. The crunching snow makes under your feet was also too loud. Later that night, when we filmed the wide shot in front of the pizza shop, there wasn't enough snow there, so they had to move it again. But in the two earlier shots of the day, we were walking down MLK Drive and the northern block of Broad and turning north onto Peachtree from MLK or walking all the way down to Prior Street. Here, the snow was actually white suds, the kind dishwashing soap makes in your sink. And it got everywhere. I'm glad I wore boots. This one woman wore these flashy black pants with ruffles streaming down her calves and huge wide bottoms. Within minutes, the bottom foot of these were all wet and sudsy. She'll think better next time before dressing this way for a winter scene. Welcome back. Faking the Big Apple, part two. By the way, it's Sunday, February 28th, 2021. I walked alone in the first scene, but props handed me an orange leather satchel that was made in Italy. It brought back fond memories of my first job on Wall Street, since I had something nearly identical, but it was burgundy and from Eddie Bauer. It went well with my trench coat at the time because that was what everyone wore. How silly, as if we were all private detectives. Anyway, the satchel was kind of heavy, so I opened it up to see what was inside. Three books. And this is where reality kicks in. It was a real satchel filled with real books, but they were not really mine. The books were as follows. The History Boys, Lola, and The Conspiracy of Pontiac. I'm not kidding. Someone somewhere either randomly picked these out or put real thought into why these should be the books in my satchel as I walked briskly down the streets of New York City. I met Deja Jean from College Park in my second act. 
It was the same scene, but shot from somewhere else. We had tons to talk about. She's a newbie, and this was only her second background job. I had run into two colleagues from Red Notice here, Riley and Dan. I reintroduced myself to Riley, who clearly remembered me, but not my name. When Riley pulled Deja and me together as a couple, he called me DJ, which confused her because that's her nickname too. She thought he was talking to her, but couldn't figure out how he knew her name. He didn't. Her reality wasn't real. He was talking to both of us, but calling me by name. At least that's what I thought was true. Later, I was telling my friend Rowella about this without realizing Deja was sitting right next to us. She chimed in to say, I'm sitting right here. And that was cute. But I later realized that either I was talking extremely loudly or that she was eavesdropping or both because she later asked me about my YouTube channel. I handed her one of my sparkly new business cards. She confirmed she would definitely find me online. This was a first. Earlier, I had shown Rowella all five flavors of my new cards, but she didn't even ask for one. And who am I to push my cards on anyone? While Deja and I were on set, we noticed a business called The Bakery next to us. She thought it was a bakery, but as we looked inside, it looked more like an art gallery. And it was. What a strange name for a business. She wanted a donut, and I dared her to go in and ask for one. Who would have thought we'd find a fake bakery in the middle of our fake movie set today? Fooled again. I worked probably from four to six and then had an hour of boredom from six to seven. It pays to make yourself known. Riley came in at seven and pulled me out for the next scene, which kept me occupied for the next 90 minutes. The way I see it is that Riley could have chosen anyone for the role, but why risk an unknown quantity? What if the person can't follow orders and totally messes up the scene? Then he's got to deal with that problem. Since he knows me from Red Notice and knows not only can I do background work, but also body double work, there's little to no risk in asking me to walk down the block through snow, past the main characters, and cross the street once I get to the taxi cab. He came back occasionally to tweak my path, and when subsequent shots were done, we had to alter my start point, but it was ultimately a real win for me. And then for the third take, they moved the cameras behind the actors so that I would be seen full on approaching them. That will be interesting to see. Faking the Big Apple, part three. I've never seen such challenges keeping real people and real cars from interfering with shooting. For the entire day, random people kept walking onto our blocks and PAs had to stop them and convince them to turn and go the other way, including homeless people, real ones. One of these accosted Rowella as she sat in her truck waiting to drive it down the street. During my walking scene, another BG was picked to be a fake homeless person and sit in a doorway on a trash bag in a pile of snow and ask me for money as I walked by. I was told to just look at him and not offer anything. I won't tell you what the real me would do in that situation. MLK Drive is a one-way street going west. Our cars were traveling the wrong way on it going east. At one point, a random driver turned onto our set and seeing the direction our cars were facing, drove down it the wrong way. A PA jumped into the street and yelled, this is a one-way street, you're going the wrong way. Poor guy fake movie driving looked so real that he was just going with the flow. Oh, and although the Atlanta street signs remained, I did see two green New York City street signs on a corner a bit lower on the poles, denoting St. Mark's Place and First Avenue, neither of which Atlanta really has. These are in lower Manhattan. 
I'm guessing the camera shots will include the New York signs, but not the Atlanta ones. At one point, I noticed a bunch of firemen walking down the street across from me and wondered what was on fire and why they were all allowed to be on set. Fooled again. They were not real, and nothing was really on fire. When I got back to holding after my 90 minutes of snow walking, there were lots of new faces. Fake cops, fake firemen, and fake paramedics. Something big was about to go down. For the final scene, which took us to 1am, we were outside the pizza shop, phased and staring at what had just happened. Police were on the scene, fire trucks, and lots of door slamming. Morella kept making the cop, who was pushing us back from it all, smile and laugh. We met the pizza guy later while checking out. He lives in North Carolina and only came all the way here to network for his daughter. They had convinced him that the director specifically wanted him but neglected to care that his arm was covered in tattoos. That's a no-no because they all have to be covered up. Back to the block of Broad Street. Across from us, there was a cute fake bookshop with giant black arms that ended in white Mickey Mouse gloves holding a book titled History Upside Down and a little juice place next door. Our side was covered with brightly colored murals painted over brick and fake posters, which I was reading while standing in the snow. I plan to go back there next week so I can figure out exactly what is real and what the production put into place. I already know some of it's fake again because it doesn't show up in the Maps app. Someone told me business owners were paid $1,000 a day to close down for filming. That's probably true and not a lie. In sum, there's a lot of fake stuff in the industry, and it's meant to be convincing to viewers. It will be just as convincing to you if you let it, and many times it's hard to tell the difference between what's real and what's been built for the scene you're in. I'm almost done with this episode. Today is Wednesday, March 3rd, 2021. I know I said I had three gigs this week, but I had to cancel Games People Play this Friday. I'm just wiped out from the Saturday job I had and Monday on First Wives Club. I know I've said in the past to expect 12 hour days. Even if you've been on a TV show six times and they've been short days, you cannot assume they will all be short. I arrived at First Wives Club on Monday at 8.30 a.m. and we were not done until 10 p.m. The reason for this is that they shot part of our scene in the morning, but then switched to another scene we were not in for most of the day, and then came back to the original scene at 8 p.m. There must be some logic to this, but it appears to defy logic to the average person. The one blatant difference between filming in the real world and filming on a soundstage is that there's no disguise in the real world as something else. The sets are built from scratch, and you know everything is fake. It's not as if you're at the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, which the resident somehow turns into a hospital. I hear they film there on Mondays, when it's closed, obviously. The whole First Wives gig was at the World Congress Center. Right next to our holding area are sound stages with fake sets built by real carpenters to look like real places. Like restaurants. This was a restaurant scene, and I've done these before on Dynasty. Except this restaurant was pretty full, and most people had food on their tables. In case you're wondering, it's real food, but it's not meant to be eaten. That's a whole exercise in faking, in and of itself. I mean, how do you fake eat food without putting it into your mouth? You just bring it really close, open wide, and then decide you're not hungry after all? No PAs have ever coached me on this, so I'm still wondering. 
In the first scene, I was paired with an older Asian man named Gary. The conversation was minimal. I just couldn't read his lips and had little interest in whatever he had to say. We did have real food, and I just played with mine and pretended to cut whatever the meat was. He had a huge piece of beef sitting on a giant piece of broccoli, which he had trouble playing with. However, in the evening, I got a better date. In this scene, there was an interracial couple at the bar, and I was paired with a cute black woman who was so much fun to talk to. We had a somewhat treacherous job. This is the exact same role I had on Dynasty, and it goes like this. Walk into the restaurant with your date. Stop at the maitre d' to check in. She'll confirm your reservation and that your table is ready, grab two menus, and lead you to your table. You'll have to pull the chairs out very quietly because they always make noise. Then a waitress will appear and take your drink and food order. She'll come back in a few minutes with two glasses of wine. One red, one white. Pretend to drink the wine, which is actually grape juice, and it smells really good. There were a few hiccups. The menus had nothing in them, so it was hard to get excited by blank pages. I brought this to the maitre d's attention on the way out, and she just laughed and said, Not many choices, then. It was Maria, the stand-in for Gal Gadot on Red Notice. I don't think she recognized me, and we never actually met on that film, although I did talk to her during a fire drill dance party. At one point, after they yelled cut, our waitress forgot to remove our wine glasses. So when she appeared the next time, they were already on the table. She still brought two more, so we ended up with four, two each, double-fisted fake wine drinking. It doesn't get better than that. I'm officially now practicing the, quote, I don't apply for anything and just wait for central casting to make <laughs> to ask me to do stuff, unquote, mantra. Today it was the resident and MacGyver. They picked me to be an auto show enthusiast on MacGyver. That will take some acting because while my husband has five vehicles and loves Mercedes, I drive a 12-year-old Honda Civic and have only been to a car show once in my entire life. I'm recording this portion after having released this episode and then realizing that I forgot the most important part, fake people. And I don't mean disingenuous or insincere. I mean people who are hired because they look like the real actors and they're cheaper to use than the real actors. There are three types I'm aware of, stand-ins, body doubles, and stunt people. Everyone knows what stunt people do. They're trained to do dangerous things that real actors typically won't do, except for maybe Tom Cruise. A stand-in literally stands in for the actors while the camera people are setting up the scene. They are typically physically similar to the real actor and wearing similar clothing. I have done this twice, on Ozark and on Jersey, whose real name is Ms. Marvel. The stand-in leaves the set when filming is about to start and the real actor takes their place for the scene. The third group is body doubles. It's a person physically similar to the actor and dressed identically for the scene because they are in the scene instead of the real actor. And no one watching knows this because there's no dialogue. It's shot in a way that you can't tell because it's from a distance or from behind or whatever. I have done this once on Red Notice for the actor Chris Diamantopoulos. Someone must have thought that since we're both Greek, I'd be the best person for the part. Thanks, Mike Simina. It was the most fun I've ever had on set. 
On my first of 10 days doing this, I was sitting on set minding my own business when the director, Rawson Thurber Marshall, approached me slowly as if I were an alien that had just landed. When he was about a foot away and still staring incredulously in disbelief, I broke the silence and simply said, I'm not Chris. To which he replied, I didn't even know we had a body double. And then my mind started to race with thoughts of doubt, such as, Why wouldn't the director know this? Was there some type of miscommunication? Does that mean they're not going to use me because he didn't even plan on me being there? It all worked out in the end. I did get used. In fact, I myself was fooled in one scene where I tapped a main character on the shoulder, thinking it was the real actor. Two days later, it dawned on me that I had tapped the shoulder of another fake person, the body double for Dwayne Johnson. But I do think it was the real Gal Gadot in that scene. For whatever reason, sometimes they mix the real actors with body doubles based on how much of the body double you'll see. Finally, still referring to Red Notice, the most prominent body double for Ryan Reynolds was this British guy named Johnny. We saw him every day, everywhere, in almost every scene we were in. And then one day, as we were walking to Rome, out comes the real Ryan Reynolds. And he almost looked fake because my brain was so used to seeing Johnny. But I knew it was him in a fraction of a second, as did everyone else. We made a huge turn towards the left to give him and his assistant, Sophia, their space as they walked past us. Another clue? He avoided making eye contact with anyone, but we all knew it was him. There is no real recap for this episode, so I'll give you a fake one. Just kidding. Get it? When you work on TV and film projects, you open yourself up to a whole new world of imagination where people create things for the purpose of entertainment. As a background actor, you get to go along for the ride and pretend to be someone in this imaginary world. Half the fun of doing background work is marveling at the sets created or how real-world environments have been transformed into something else. This really helps you get into the mindset for your work because you don't have to imagine anything. Someone's done that for you. You just have to join the club and easily slip into character. On the flip side, participating in film and TV projects in some ways ruins the viewing experience because as you watch the works, you become increasingly aware of what's fake and what's real. Someone just told me a story this week about a scene in a movie where the background person directly behind the actor fake drinks from an empty cup. It looks absolutely ridiculous in the finished product, and it's clear as day that that dude is drinking nothing but air. Well, that was someone's fault for not watching what was happening, but kudos to the BG for pretending so well that they escaped the eyes of the director. In sum, if you like being a chameleon and being someone else in a different life, in a different world, then background acting could be the job for you. That's all for this episode. Tune in again for more of The Background Scoop, where I discuss background acting here in Atlanta. Hope you're learning and getting some BG rules of your own. Feel free to reach out with your questions, which I'll try to answer in a future episode, or tell me a story about your own experience, and I may choose to interview you. See the episode notes for how to reach out, and if you like what you've heard, please rate the podcast. Thanks for listening.